This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Let's talk about this. It's another scathing report on the conduct of the RCMP right here in Canada. This time it's the case of Colton Bushy. This is a case that has been making headlines for the last couple of years. He was the Indigenous youth shot to death while trespassing on a farm in Saskatchewan. But that case opened up a national dialogue, and rightly so, around anti-Indigenous racism. And now we're learning more about how the case was handled. And I'll tell you right now, it will make you angry. Joining us for more on this is University of Toronto law professor and author Kent Roach. Uh, he has a book out examining the case of Colton Bushy as well. Kent, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Simi. What did you think about the report that came out this week that looked into the RCMP actions surrounding this case? Well, I mean, first of all, it was about time. Uh, the report was delayed because of the RCMP's uh, action, but it certainly affirmed that the family was treated uh, just uh, abysmally. Yeah, let's break that down a little bit more. So the family of Colton Bushy has been saying for a couple of years since this happened that how horribly they were treated. This report certainly vindicates that. How did the RCMP treat them? Well, they basically treated them like criminals. So they conducted an illegal search of their home while informing uh, uh, them of of their son's death. Uh, they reportedly told Debbie Baptiste to get it together when, as she was just informed about Colton's death. Uh, they smelled her breath. They checked uh, whether uh, Colton's uh, dinner was indeed in the microwave. They they just uh, demonstrated a lack of compassion. I mean, this whole episode in which they surrounded their home with carbines and a dog uh, took 20 minutes. So, you know, I, I, I would hope that if one of us lost a loved one, the police just wouldn't show up and stay 20 minutes and it legally search us uh, and draw weapons on us and then leave. This, this, this is the type of treatment that, that no person should receive from the police. What is, they were there to notify her of her son's death, and that's how they treated her? Yeah, and the excuse for that was that they were also looking for uh, one of the um, four other Indigenous uh, p- people who were in the car with Colton. But what's kind of crazy is that they then, uh, two of the RCMP officers, according to the report, went on to search, but without all the arms and, 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 and without all the sort of aggression that was demonstrated when they came upon Debbie Batiste's house. Oh, it's just heartbreaking. So Kent, though, let's contrast that with how they behaved at the actual crime scene. Yeah, no, I mean, and and, and that's something that uh, is really uh, quite alarming. So that although a storm was brewing, they 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 left the uh, the the vehicle in which Colton Bushy was shot and killed with a shot in the back of back of his head. Um, uh, without a tarp or any other uh, covering. And the report says it was three days before they bothered to con- uh, to contact a blood splatter uh, expert. Uh, at the same time, they released the car uh, within four or five days. And so as the report says, we will never know whether the blood spatter, uh, blood sp- spatter evidence uh, would have been relevant and could have made a difference 
difference in the trial. We also will never know what the emergency phone calls were like, right, when this actually happened, because they destroyed all that. That's right. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, there's not much about that in the report, but uh, we don't know whether that was, you know, uh, a, a routine or, or not. Um, there, there, there is ongoing uh, civil litigation uh, by the Baptiste family, so that might be part of it. I mean, the other part of this is that the government of Saskatchewan never bothered to call an inquiry, never bothered even to have a coroner's inquest about how deaths like Colton Bushy's could be prevented in the future. So we're, we're fortunate enough that the, uh, the, the RCMP complaints and review body uh, conducted uh, these, these, these two reports because this may be the, the only official reports that we get about this you know, really shocking saga and demonstration of systemic racism in our justice system. And what has been the response from the RCMP on this? Well, I mean, there's there's been two responses. Uh, Commissioner Lucky <clears throat> has accepted most of the recommendations. They uh, didn't accept the recommendations that it was unreasonable to show up with carbines and surround uh, the house. Uh, but as has been getting some news, uh, the RCMP's new union uh, has uh, criticized parts of the commission's report. Right, which I mean, they're going to do. They're going to defend their officers, but well, no, but but I mean, you know, this also I think is tied up with the future of the RCMP. The RCMP is, I think, most Canadians would have to admit uh, with regret, is a troubled institution, and now for the first time in their history, they have a union. And so, you know, one of the public policy questions going forward is, who is it that speaks for the RCMP? Is it Commissioner Lucky? Is it the head of F Division in Saskatchewan? Or is it the head of the union? And and so mm-hmm. I think this is another challenge that we're going to have. Um, I mean, to be fair, the RCMP in Saskatchewan has said that they're engaging in cultural awareness training but you know um, th- that may or may not help um, when you look at the you know fairly fundamental uh, problems that uh, were demonstrated in the recent reports. Well, you said it fairly fundamental. That's the thing that gets me about this case, Kent. Is that how there could be such a lack of awareness on the part of the officers immediately upon checking this scene out, realizing this is going to be a difficult situation. We should tread very carefully. How can there be that? lack of awareness at this point? Well, I mean, you know, uh, we know that RCMP officers uh, stay in detachments two or three years. And we also know from the RCMP's press releases in this case, which didn't mention that Gerald Stanley was charged with murder until the third press release, that um, many uh, settlers, such as myself, unfortunately viewed this case through 
uh, a racist lens that focused on issues of property crime. Uh, it's also important to remember that the the report exonerates Colton Bushy of any property crime. Yes, he had been drinking, uh, but uh, was not involved with any property crime. So I think the, the fact that the first two press releases focused on the investigation of property crime uh, as opposed to the arrest uh, of, uh, of um, Gerald Stanley for Colton uh, and, and charge of murder uh, may tell you something about the RCMP's priorities at that time. Well, it tells me we have a long way to go. Kent, thank you for your time on that this morning. You're very welcome. Thank you. Appreciate the discussion. That's Kent Roach, author of Canadian Justice, Indigenous Justice. That's a book examining the case of Colton Bushy. He's also a law professor at the University of Toronto. This is Mornings with Simi. Is this the time for us to completely overhaul our long-term care industry in Canada? Should we be allowing companies to make money off long-term care? These are just some of the questions that have emerged, of course, from the COVID-19 pandemic as many of the hardest hit long-term care homes were the for-profit care homes. So now the federal NDP have tabled a motion in Ottawa calling for an end to for-profit care. So we wanted to know how would that work? Joining us now to talk about it is federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Thank you for being with us this morning. My pleasure. So how would this work? How would you do this? Well, first off, we have to acknowledge the overwhelming evidence and really the painful reality that in this pandemic that has gripped the world, that in our country, seniors, particularly those living in long-term care, bore the brunt of it. And when we compare it to other nations, we are amongst the worst performing for similar-sized economies. We've really failed our seniors, and it's a national shame. And what the evidence has shown is that it is overwhelmingly clear that for-profit long-term care homes were the site of the worst conditions of care and consequently the worst outcomes when it comes to rates of infections and how deadly the infection was. So what we're calling for is we can start immediately to to move away from this for-profit model. For-profit should never take precedence over the care of our loved ones. Uh, by starting with Rivera, which is owned by a federal agency, make that public, make, work with provinces and territories, to to buy back this resource and give it back to the people. Make sure it's it's governed by and services are pri- provided municipally, provincially by the people. And then uh, work with provinces and territories to get rid of private, for-profit, long-term care homes across the country. Right. So who would run that then? Because obviously some areas of it is provincial, some of it is federal. How would you how would you deal with that? Well, what we would do is uh, work with. Uh, the model that works, which is either publicly delivered long-term care, which is often municipal or provincial, or not-for-profit, which is sometimes through cultural community groups that provide culturally sensitive uh, but not-for-profit care. Both of those models have shown to be effective, to work, and to provide good care. All right. So is this the best time to do this, do you think, now when it gets so much attention? Yeah, and that's the thing is that we have seen uh, really horrible things happen in this pandemic to our our loved ones in long-term care. But this is not a new problem. This has been the result of of decades of negligence. Not only do we need to make sure we get rid of profit, but we need to invest significantly into long-term care homes. Uh, But I don't want this to be just a COVID-19 thing that we think, okay, this happened because of the pandemic. Once everyone's vaccinated, we're we're all done. 
no, we need to actually use the momentum now to fix this once and for all. Is it not possible, though, to institute standards of care without taking all of these care homes over? The standards of care are are very important. So, I, of course, we need to gather all of what we've learned in this pandemic, what's worked, what's not worked. We know that the hours of care and the conditions of work are directly related to good quality care for our seniors. So those things are certainly things we need to establish. But if we have for-profit homes and we're funding them, providing them with funds, what happens is for every dollar we spend for care for our loved ones in long-term care, if it's a for-profit home, that that dollar doesn't all make it to care. Some of it will go to profit. Some of it will go to shareholders. Some of it will go to paying executives. And that's wrong. None of the money that we spend on our loved ones, on seniors, should end up in the pockets of shareholders. It should all go to care. And we've seen in for-profit homes, they cut corners to save money and to make profits. The only way they're profitable is they cut the quality of food. They have less hours of care. They have less staff in general. And all those things mean seniors are getting uh, substandard treatment. Let me ask you then. So if there is an election coming up, which everybody seems to think we're going to get one this year, is this something that the NDP would run on? Absolutely. Without a doubt, this is a key priority for us. We look at what's happened to our seniors and say, this is enough. This can never happen again. This should never be the case that our seniors bear the brunt of a pandemic or an outbreak. And so we are committed to this as a, uh, as a promise that we would make and we would absolutely run on this. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. Jagmeet Singh, federal NDP leader, talking about a motion tabled in Ottawa this week, calling for an end to for-profit care in this country. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, catering companies have been hard hit by the pandemic, like so many other industries, but now they're facing a second wedding season with no idea of what might be happening. Will they be able to have small weddings? Will it be another season with nothing going on? Well, let's talk about that. How do you even prepare for something like that? Angie Qualley is the owner of Well Seasoned. It's a food store and a catering company, and she joins us now to talk about this. Angie, thanks for being with us. Sure, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you guys hanging in there? I know you've been pivoting, right? You've been doing ready-made meals. How has that been working out? Yeah, we're doing a lot of uh, ready-made meals and meals to go. Um, We've been doing some office catering just in terms of like individual uh, lunches and meals that are being sent out to staff or to teams remotely. So we've been doing, you know, whatever we can as um, sort of the occasion comes up. You've got to, you know, find a little creativity and get it done. And how has the response been? Well, it was better before. Uh, I think everybody's just kind of worn out. You know, everybody's zoomed out. Everybody's uh, had enough of these sort of remote events where they can't really participate the way they want to participate. So I think people are are bored of it and they want to go back to sort of celebrating the way we're kind of all used to celebrating. So how have the, like you've been packaging up meals ready made, do people respond to that? Yeah, they love the convenience and, you know, it's given them an opportunity uh, during COVID when they maybe weren't comfortable going to restaurants um, in, in the sort of the volume that they used to go out. I mean, we have lots of customers that say they used to eat out three or four nights a week. And so not going to restaurants three or four nights a week, having an option for a really delicious homemade meal in their home that they didn't have to cook. They've really 
really loved that. So we're selling tons of meals every single week. Wow, three or four nights a week. That is really something. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of people eat out a lot. I me. guess so. I guess so. I underestimated that one. Uh, <laughs> so Angie, when you look ahead, like what would you normally be doing if there was no such thing as COVID-19? What would you normally be doing at this time of year? Right now, we'd be planning sort of all of our spring, summer, and summer barbecues and picnics. So we do a lot of corporate catering. So we do a lot of company picnics, company barbecues. Um, we do a lot of sort of in-home dinner parties. We do small events, you know, groups of 50 or 75. We, we don't, um, we aren't set up to handle, you know, the thousand person events or anything like that. We do more custom sort of smaller size events. And so people are calling and asking about availability. Should there be an opportunity for them to gather? I think people are, are planning right now for groups of 10 uh, or, or maybe even 20 or 30 during the summer with the caveat that those numbers will be controlled sort of by the public health office and what their ability is to, um, to go forward with the plans. How difficult is that for you, though? Because it sounds like people are want to book something, but it might be something and only if they're allowed to do it. How do you plan for something like that? Well, you don't really. I mean, you just have to wait and see just like everybody else. We put the date in the calendar for the client. And if things go ahead, then we go ahead. And if they don't, they don't. I mean, we have been very cautious and very careful during the pandemic to make sure that we're following all of the public health guidelines and keeping our team as safe as possible. And so unfortunately, like every other person, it's kind of a wait and see thing. Um, I think the hardest thing for, for me to watch in this has not been necessarily, you know, the celebrations that have been canceled, but it's been the the celebrations of life that have been postponed or been canceled. You know, it's one thing to celebrate and have a party with your friends, but it's entirely a different thing when you need to say goodbye to a loved one or have a celebration of life and you can't grieve or sort of mourn with the people that you love. So that's been really, really hard on a lot of people. So what do you tell people then if they call to say, hey, I'd like to book something for this summer? What do you tell them? Sure. I say, yeah, let's talk about what, you know, what it is you'd like to do. I'm not super optimistic that we'll be having gatherings over the over 50 at any point this summer. Um, it could potentially go back to 50, but I'm not, I'm not planning for anything beyond that. So we're talking about what the event could look like. And everybody understands that it's kind of organic. The numbers could change any day. We could go back to nothing or we could go back up to 50. So, um, you know, the clients understand that. Um, my staff understand it. We're just, everybody's just doing what they can do until the public health orders sort of change or evolve. Will you be able to make it through this year? Yeah, we'll make it. Our customers have been incredibly supportive with our weekly meals. We do uh, dinner to go every Friday and Saturday night. It's a really delicious, you know, dinner for two. Excellent value. It's $44 for this three-course dinner for two. And we sell tons of that every week. Um, I've been incredibly fortunate with the volume in our retail store. Our retail store is doing really well. People are cooking at home and eating at home. So that's helped carry us through. I mean, we also closed our cooking school a year ago. So we were doing cooking classes every single day. 
in our cooking school. So that place is, you know, that space in my in my footprint is is sitting empty. So that's been really expensive for us too. But yeah, we'll definitely make it through because, you know, everybody has has shopped and and bought our food and continued to support us. Do you, you know, when things do, you know, change and perhaps go back to normal? Do you think all that stuff will pick up again? Will you be giving cooking classes or do you think maybe your food to go and all of that might be the new normal? I don't know, Simi. I really, I don't know. I mean, I'm not super, um, I'm not super clear on what people are, what people are going to expect after this. Are they want, going to want to come back into small group settings? You know, our cooking classes yeah. were for, you know, 18 or 20 people. Do you want to be shoulder to shoulder cooking your dinner with people you don't know? Or do you want to just have a more sort of bespoke kind of private cooking class with, with a group, maybe your, your bubble? Um, so I'm not sure what that's going to look like. I mean, I think it's all got a long ways to shake out. And truthfully, I don't see my cooking school opening this year. Uh, even if the public health orders change later in the summer, by the time everybody's vaccinated and we're able to, you know, when you're cooking, you can't wear a mask. You got to taste things and smell things. And, you know, so I, I think I, I don't expect that to change this year. Right now, I'm sort of planning that we might be able to open in January. But um, again, right. I don't know, unfortunately. Well, is there something that public health officials could say that might be helpful for a business like yours? Um, no, I don't think they know either. I think, honestly, I just think it's kind of waiting for everybody to be vaccinated. And if we can, you know, get through this next piece and get back to whatever this is going to look like, I mean, it's certainly not going to be our normal. We're never going back to that, I don't think, in the same way we were, you know, in February of 2019 or whatever it was. So um, long ago, right? <laughs> I know. What year are we in? Um, I don't think we'll ever be back in that exact same space, or certainly it'll take years to get back yeah. there. Um, just with people's comfort level. And, you know, people's habits have changed so much in the last 18 months, Simi. Like, people who were going out super often have now learned to cook at home, or they've changed the way they grocery shop, mm-hmm. and they're buying more prepared meals, maybe from places like mine or from the grocery store. And so I'm not sure how long it'll take people to to change their habits again. That is so true. Angie, listen, best of luck and thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. That is Angie Qualley, owner of the Well-Seasoned Food Store and Catering Company. Lots of meals to go. You can check them out at wellseasoned.ca. But another summer ahead of just not knowing what to plan for. This is Mornings with Simi. What the heck are NFTs and why are people paying so much money for them? Boy, this has come up over and over again, especially in the last few weeks. I mean, these are the hottest new collectibles you probably never heard of. People are snapping up millions of dollars worth of these things. So we thought, let's find someone who can explain this all to us. Weston Blasio's reporter with the Wall Street Journal and Market Watch joins us now to explain, in particular, NBA Top Shot collectibles. Uh, Weston, thanks so much for joining us. Well, happy to be on. Good morning, guys. Uh, I would imagine you're getting asked about this a lot lately. I am, and it's it's really weird to explain to people who are uninitiated in the NFT space. Um, so, uh, yeah, if you want me to get into, it, I mean, NFTs. People are seeing this everywhere, like you like you talked about a second ago. What is an NFT? 
Um, an NFT, a non-fungible token, um, compare that to something like currency, which is fungible. It can be broken down into multiple pieces. A non-fungible token is kind of like art. You know, you can't take a picture of something and break it down into similar pieces like you can with a dollar, breaking it down into multiple quarters. It is a non-fungible token that can't be broken down. And it's, it's sort of like a digital asset in the same way that something like Bitcoin is. Okay, but how does it get authenticated? So the way that the NBA Top Shot is working is an NFT or an NBA Top Shot is being authenticated by the NBA. So an NFT is usually being what they call minted by the owner or originator of the NFT. So those people can verify that it is legitimate, that it has not been altered, they own it, and then they can verify and sell it to multiple people using things like serial numbers, using uh, the blockchain technology that is similar to what uh, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum use. And there's a distinguished ledger that can track where these NFTs are traveling to and from. Okay, so the way I've tried to figure this out in Weston, it seems to me these are modern-day digital trading cards. Yeah, that's, that's the best way to put it. Um, I can understand people are already rolling their eyes. But yeah, these are digital trading cards. And you can think to yourself, well, uh, I have a trading card and I can feel it. I can see it in my hand. I have this, uh, this picture of LeBron James on the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2003. I can see it. I can feel it. That has value to me. So why would a digital trading card have any value, right? But the idea that a tr- actual physical trading card has value is sort of only valuable in the way that we all convince each other that it's valuable. It doesn't necessarily produce anything. It just has value because we sort of assign it value. And that's sort of how a lot of things get value in the world. We just don't like to think about it with digital items because it gets a little goofy. Right. Because you're, you're, what you're saying is that, listen, a hockey, a hockey card or a sports card in the end is a piece of paper or cardboard that we have assigned value to. This just happens to be something digital that we have assigned value to. Yeah, and there's a lot of things that we do that with. I mean, if a lot of people are sort of comparing NFTs or, or Bitcoin or other things of that nature that are all digital to like something like gold. Now, gold is physical, so it's not a perfect comparison, but gold sort of ranges in value based on sort of our perception of what it should be valued. We don't really use gold in the same way that we did hundreds of years ago, which is like literally for metal, for jewelry purposes. Gold just sort of moves up and down in value as people perceive it to move up and down in value. And you can see that, you know, manifesting through charts and things of that nature. But this is sort of like, as you were saying before, like collectibles, like digital collectibles that can go up and down in value based on what other people think it's worth. Okay, well, clearly a lot of people think it's worth something, right? Because you've got a sports league like the NBA, they have gotten in on this. And I was reading a story in Wall Street Journal, actually, about how the NBA could expect to collect hundreds of millions of dollars in the next year or two on this. Is the NBA kind of ahead of other sports leagues on this? The NBA, in a lot of ways, is ahead of other sports leagues. Um, In this one in particular, it is. I mean, you talked about the hundreds of millions of dollars the NBA is making on Top Shot right now. So as of this morning, I checked just so I had the most up-to-date data for you guys. They have done over $400 million of transactions on NBA Top Shot. 
Now, to explain what NBA Top Shot is specifically, you said it was like digital trading cards. It is like digital trading cards, except instead of a picture of LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, Dwayne Wade for your quote-unquote card, the NBA Top Shots are called moments. And each moment is not a picture, it's a video. So the videos could be of a dunk, an assist, a pass, and it's a very short video, usually about 10 to 20 seconds. And each of these moments on NBA Top Shot is verifiable through the blockchain, has its own unique serial number. So that's sort of what we get at when we're talking about value of why would this dunk by LeBron James on NBA Top Shot, why would that be worth $500? And why would a very similar play by um, a lesser known player like Jamichael Green for the Memphis Grizzlies? Probably not a lot of your listeners know who Jamichael Green is, but everyone knows who LeBron James is, Right. right? Okay, so, and this, but this is like you said, five hundred dollars. That seems to be on the low end of things here. How huge has this become in the last little while, Weston? So it's become massive, and the four hundred million in digital transactions is just sort of the beginning. That's sort of just the last few months of it. Um, we're seeing some of the more high-priced moments on NBA Top Shot sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think the record today is a LeBron James dunk that was sold for two hundred and eight thousand dollars a video of lebron james dunking was sold for two hundred eight thousand dollars and it's it's unclear how big this can get i mean some of the other sports leagues that you were mentioning uh that you were talking about before of how the nba is ahead some of the other sports leagues are seeing what the nba is doing and being like whoa we should get in on this because this is a multi-million dollar industry that we could be harnessing okay so do you think this is just the beginning it is just the beginning, but that also doesn't mean that it can't fall back. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of sort of industries sort of pop up huge in the beginning and then sort of take a step back. But that step back doesn't necessarily mean that the idea of it, the idea of, uh, you know, NFTs and things of that nature are not going to come back. Um, and there might be a correction at some point, but, you know, I just wrote a story uh, yesterday about NFTs and how, you know, Jack Dorsey sold one of his tweets as an NFT for $2.9 million. So it doesn't seem like this is going away anytime soon. Weston, on that note, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. I appreciate that. All right. I hope I did a good job. You did a great job. We're going to have to have you back. Thanks, Weston. All right. Thank you. <laughs> that is Weston Blasey. He's a reporter at Market Watch and the Wall Street Journal. And he did a great job explaining what these NFTs are and why all of a sudden you are reading about them everywhere, hearing about them everywhere. He mentioned that Jack Dorsey tweet yesterday, uh, Jack Dorsey being the founder of Twitter, his very first tweet sold as an NFT for $2.9 million U.S., and if you're wondering what the heck is it, the very simplest way to explain it is it is a digital form of some kind of trading card. And remember how much you love trading those and thought they were going to be worth money? This is a whole new world. This is Mornings with Simi. So many lakes are popular in the summertime, right? Take Harrison. It is jam-packed with people having a good time on the surface. I'm not sure a lot of them have ever thought about what lies beneath, uh, but you know what? Our next guest did, Clayton Helkenberg, is a diver who decided to take a deeper look at what lies beneath Harrison Lake. He's here to tell us now about what he found. Clayton, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. What made you want to do this? 
Um, so in the last summer here, I started diving in our lakes uh, quite a bit more. I was, ended up being laid off, so I just had a lot of free time. So the more I was swimming in the lakes, uh, the more trash I was seeing. So I was finding some cool stuff like phones and sunglasses, but we just kind of <laughs> realized that the more cool things we're finding, also the most, more trash there is in the lakes. I, like phones and sunglasses I can see, right? People drop those, I'm sure, in the water all the time. Sure. But tell me about the garbage that you found down there. Yeah, so I always kind of say that, you know, some of it is going to be accidental. So maybe 5%, 10%, you know, you're on a dock or on a boat and something falls overboard, which it does happen. Um, but I feel a solid 90% of the stuff that we find, and it's mainly cans and bottles, um, are from people being not the most thoughtful at the lakes. And it just goes in the water and they think it just disappears. They don't really think that's going to be there for years and years. Clayton, you're being so polite about this. Not the most thoughtful. <laughs> you're talking about people being jerks, throwing their bottles and cans when they're drinking overboard, yeah, right? <laughs> so how much stuff did you find down there? Uh, it kind of depends on day to day. So in the summer, we had quite a few dedicated days that uh, you spent you know, four or five hours just pulling up trash. So on those days, excess of 1,000 pounds. Um, but we do a lot of smaller little cleanups where we'll pull out you know, maybe 100 pounds here and there. So just how long does it take you to pull a thousand pounds of trash out of places like Cultus Lake? So Cultus Lake, I would say is the most densely populated with trash for sure of any lake around here. Um, so I think there's three or four of us that were swimming and a couple hours, two, three hours, sort of three of us uh, pulling trash out. Clayton, that's kind of shocking that three or four people can pull that much trash out in three or four hours, don't you think? Oh, for sure. Um, like a lot of it's going to be tires and stuff. But uh, yeah, on each of those dives, we probably pulled out four or 500 cans. And so from the diving that you do, what does it do? With, like with all that garbage down there, what kind of an impact does that have? Um, yeah, so when we're pulling all the stuff out, um, often we find crayfish and other little fish trapped in um, like the cans and bottles. So it just can't be a good thing. And a lot of the stuff we find is little bits of plastic that just break down. And it's just, just not great for the environment. So you've been putting all this stuff on YouTube. What kind of reaction are you getting to it? Oh, it's been super positive. Um, yeah, about, like I said, last year, I uh, started filming and posting a lot of this. So very positive. Uh, a lot of people thank me for pulling this stuff out. Yeah, they thank you. But then what about the people who are still throwing stuff in there? How do you get people to stop doing this, Clayton? That, that's a hard one. So just getting the awareness of how much stuff is in the lakes is such a big concept. Um you're never going to stop all the people. People are just people, I guess. But uh, yeah, just to bring awareness to the issue is probably one of the top priorities for us. So like this summer, that would probably be a good time to do that. What do you do? Like, do you put up signs? Do you talk to people? How do you get through to them and tell them, don't do this? So in the summer, we end up piling just a whole bunch of trash beside garbage cans, um, kind of a display to show that how much trash is actually in the lakes. Um, one of the groups I dive with is cleaner, Divers for Cleaner Lakes and Oceans. They have a sign um, at the lake while they do these cleanups. And for my part, I try to post a lot of the pictures and videos on Instagram and YouTube. And that's kind of my way to show people that how much trash is in the lakes for the most part. I like that idea of piling it all there uh, because people probably look at that and go, ew, gross, but they don't think about it if they can't see it. Yeah, so for Cultus Lake, um, we're pretty fortunate. We had a bit of a deal with the park board going that we, once we pull all the garbage out, we just kind of put it by one of the nearest garbage cans and they'll come down in a, later that day or the next day and take it all away for us, which is super helpful for us. So what do you hope that happens as a result of all this work, Clayton? Um, well, ideally, just less trash being in there. So quite often, we'll go to the same spot maybe a couple months later, and there'll be a bunch of new stuff. Mm-hmm. So ideally, in the future, you know, weeks, months, years ahead, um, if we go to the same spot after we do a cleanup, hopefully there isn't anything there. 
Yeah, one would hope, right? Couple, it must be so though disheartening for you sometimes to go back there and go. Didn't we just clean this place up? Yeah, for sure. Like that does happen quite often. Where can people see your videos? Uh, so my channel on YouTube and my Instagram is called Aquatic Monkey. Um, just kind of a fun little name I made up there. And uh, yeah, so I post all my stuff on those two platforms for the most part. That's pretty cool. Listen, keep up the good work, okay? All right, thanks so much. Thank you for telling us all about it. That is Clayton Helkenberg. He's a diver, had some time on his hands last summer, as we all did, but he decided, you know what, he was going to take a deeper look at some of our local lakes, and what he found down there was trash. Lots of it. In just a couple of hours at Cultus Lake, he and a couple of friends, so three or four of them, divers, pulled up thousands of pounds of trash from the bottom of Cultus Lake. That is disgusting. You could see how it happens, right? People out there water skiing on their boats, having a good time, just drinking a beer, whatever, throwing it overboard, just, you know, thinking that, oh yeah, who cares? It's going to float to the bottom. Well, it does matter. Uh, So that would be a great campaign that more people should get behind is just don't throw stuff in the water if you're out there having a good time. Clayton and his friends would prefer to not have to go down there and collect all that garbage. But yes, check out his YouTube channel. He is Aquatic Monkey, which is a cute name.